Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. For this episode, we are thrilled to welcome Brigadier General Mike Adamson, the commander of the newly established 3 Canadian Space Division. The Royal Canadian Air Force marked the establishment of 3 Canadian Space Division on July 22nd. The division is an evolution from the Air Force's Director General Space Organization, as the responsibility for space operations has steadily grown over the last decade. According to the Air Force, the establishment of 3 Canadian Space Division recognizes the critical importance of space in all Canadian Armed Forces operations and day-to-day activities, and is a step forward in protecting Canada's interests in space. This newest division of the Air Force will streamline, focus, and improve how space-based capabilities support critical Canadian Armed Forces requirements to deliver communications, command and control, navigation, weather, and situational awareness in support of military operations and activities. Such activities can include search and rescue, monitoring Canada's maritime approaches, support to NORAD operations, and support to decision-making in overseas operations. The establishment of 3 Canadian Space Division will also include the re-establishment of 7 Wing, which will comprise 7 Space Operations Squadron and 7 Operations Support Squadron. A priority for 3 Canadian Space Division will be Canada's commitment to the Combined Space Operations Initiative. This agreement includes Australia, France, Germany, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, the United States, and Canada, and provides opportunities to enhance cooperation on defense space activities. The space domain has relevance in day-to-day life and is of growing importance, as you will hear. So we hope you enjoyed this episode with Brigadier General Adamson. Let's cue the music. Hey everybody, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala and I'm your host. And today I'm very happy to have on the show Brigadier General Mike Adamson, who is the new commander of 3 Canadian Space Division. And he happens to be the first commander of 3 Canadian Space Division because it is a brand new division that's been established under the Royal Canadian Air Force. So uh, let's get right into it. Uh, Brigadier General Adamson, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks very much, Jody. Appreciate it. It's great to have you here, sir. So like I do with most of my guests, I want to get a sense of who you are and where you came from. So please tell me a little bit about what prompted you to join the military and what made you pick the branch that you did. Well, I, uh, I guess I'll start off by saying I'm a military brat myself. Um, I grew up in, in an Air Force household. And my father was a, a starfighter pilot uh, back in the day, flew the, uh, the venerable CF-104, and, uh, and certainly uh, was actually the final commanding officer of a 104 squadron when we transitioned to the F-18s. So I spent a good deal of my teenage years uh, living in Germany uh, and enjoying the, uh, that lifestyle and what the Air Force had to offer, the military had to offer. Um, like any teenager, I probably rebelled and went off and did my own thing for a little bit. Uh, but after I completed university, I looked back at uh, really what I wanted to do. And, and the, uh, the RCAF had certainly treated my family very well. And I thought, you know, that's something that I would uh, like to partake in as well. So I uh, joined up with the Air Force at that point. Um, 
was enrolled as a as a navigator and uh, went off. I got my wings and then uh, started my flying career in uh, Greenwood as a navigator on CP140. Lovely, lovely. And so I'm assuming that that was the bulk of your career was in the long range maritime patrol community. Absolutely. So I had my uh, initial operational tour uh, and then followed that off as an instructor at 404 Squadron at the OTU. Um, and then, you know, interspersed amongst uh, tours and staff at headquarters uh, back to Greenwood uh, as the DCO 405 and then back as the commanding officer of 405 Squadron. So uh, certainly I've got a, a long history with, uh, with the Eagles of 405. Uh, and then was able to close out uh, my CP140 time as the wing commander in Greenwood from 2017 to 2019. And certainly that was a great way to cap off uh, a number of years with that community and in that location. Greenwood's a wonderful place to be. So certainly, thoroughly enjoyed that. Oh, that's great. And so uh, what was the next step after your time in the maritime patrol community? Well, like I said, uh, over the course of the years in and out of, uh, out of the community, uh, I had a number of staff tours working in, uh, in various organizations as a career manager, working in the VCDS group uh, and what have you. Um, finished off my tour in Greenwood as the wing commander and then went off and did the national securities program in Toronto for a year, which was a hugely educational experience. A uh, great sort of overview of not just military issues, but geostrategic issues, uh, almost like a, a master's in political science, if you will. Really interesting course. Uh, and then upon completion of that course, uh, the commander of the Air Force came up to me and said, hey, listen, Mike, uh, you're going to get promoted and uh, we think you'd be a great fit for space. And I thought, uh, OK, um, I don't know a lot about it, but I'm always willing to learn. It seemed uh, like an interesting place to be. And uh, yeah, I've thoroughly enjoyed the, uh, the last couple of years, uh, certainly working in this job and, and looking forward to a, an opportunity for a third year as the new uh, DIFF commander. So that's really cool. It, it, and it's a great way to segue into this topic of space, uh, the, the space domain. So prior to the establishment of three Canadian Space Division, how did the Canadian Armed Forces deal with the space domain? Who was responsible for it? And how, was, how were those efforts executed? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting story. And I think as with any new capability or new domain, it really has been an evolution over the last couple of years. Um, I think from an anecdotal perspective or sort of an analogy, I guess, um, if we look at World War I and the advent of, of air power, if you will. So you starts off with observer balloons and people looking across the lines at, at, uh, at their adversary and, and then the advent of the airplane. And, and it was all sort of all done within the, the army. Um, and an, an army flying corps, if you will. Uh, and then somewhere along the line, somebody said, you know, I think this is actually bigger than just that. I think we need an organization that concentrates on this new domain and this new capability uh, and everything that has to offer. And, and out of that, air forces were born. Um, I think very similarly in the space domain, um, it's been a long time sort of coming uh, and a natural evolution of how we treat it. So, you know, within the Canadian forces context, you know, you go back, probably 15 years or so. And, you know, the first office was sort of stood up to say, listen, I think this is something we need to look at in the future. I think it's something that's going to be important to us, um, not really understanding where it went. And so a couple of folks within the DCDS organization was charged with being the director of, uh, of space of the space directorate. Um, and, and over time, you know, we looked at, uh, you know, brought on board capabilities, understood our own reliance on space capabilities and enablers, things like GPS, for instance, or satellite communications. Uh, so that office grew certainly in importance. Uh, and then around about 2015 or so, uh, the CDS at the time said, you know, I think we're at a point now where we need to sort of take it out of the VCDS organization and, and give it to a larger organization that can take it to that next step. So it was moved out of the devices group into the Air Force. Um, and uh, as General Meinzinger likes to say, the baby in the incubator as well, he was responsible for, for, for bringing this thing along into the, uh, the next bound, if you will. 
Um, and so at that time, DG Space um, was the organization, was moved over to the Air Force. The Air Force then took that entire sort of space enterprise, which included things like capability development and some readiness, and used the lever or leveraged the staff within the Air Force to advance those things. So the capability development side came out of DG Space and was given to our Air Force Force Development, who are now Air and Space Force Development. Um, likewise, there's a readiness component that was moved over to Air Force Readiness or Air and Space Readiness. So now we're able to sort of leverage all that staff horsepower across the Air Force and make it truly an Air and Space Force um, with interest across all of that. Uh, the end result then was a DG Space organization that was really sort of concentrating on sort of those so, um, institutional movements going forward. You know, what do we need to do to be a credible space organization? We need to look at doctrine. Uh, we need to have a strategy. Uh, we need to understand how we work with our allies. Um, and at the end of the day, what we we're also seeing was an evolution amongst uh, most nations that have got some equity in space. Um, you look at the U.S. example, obviously the biggest with the creation of Space Force, um, but equally our allies like Australia and the U.K. standing up their own space commands. Um, and we similarly recognize that, you know, we need to operationalize this organization. It's not a DG or a bureaucracy, if you will. It's actually something that's bringing effects to bear for the entire Canadian forces. Uh, and so it was actually a couple of years ago that it was proposed that we stand up a division to recognize the operational imperatives behind what we're doing in space. Um, people ask where the three came from. Well, it's one Canadian Air Division and two Canadian Air Division uh, in Winnipeg, as uh, some of you may know. Uh, so three Canadian Space Division was the next number. Uh, and so we stood that up on the 22nd of July. Um, it doesn't change necessarily what we do on a day-to-day -day basis at the moment, but like I said, it, it operationalizes that concept, gives us a bit of a different focus, um, and helps sort of cement as we engage with the rest of the Canadian Armed Forces that this is in fact an operational capability and, and key to what it is that we're doing in all operations across all domains, Army, Air Force, Navy, and land, sea, and air. So uh, really, it's, it's just a recognition, like I said, of that evolving importance of the domain. And of course, you know, over the years, the domain has been recognized as as a warfighting or operational domain. NATO did that in, uh, I believe, in 2020. They recognized it as an operational domain. Um, so it's it's just sort of keeping pace with what uh, the rest of the world is doing as well in recognition of the importance of this. Yeah, it's such a fascinating, uh, such a fascinating domain. Um, so, you know, you mentioned things like GPS, and I guess one of the things I'd like to do before we get deeper into the three Canadian Space Division is to discuss some of the areas where Canada is currently involved in space or how space relates to the Canadian Armed Forces. Because then that, I think, will form our discussion moving forward as to how you guys will now execute in the division itself. Certainly. So I think, generally speaking, um, there isn't much that we do in the Canadian Armed Forces, uh, Army, Air Force, Navy, Special Ops, that doesn't start its day with some kind of connection to a capability or an enabler that relies on a space connection. Um, you know, the GPS is a perfect example. You know, there aren't many pieces of equipment that we use that doesn't somehow or another require uh, the position, navigation, or timing signal associated with the GPS signal. So, you know, it's, it's absolutely a critical enabler to what we do. Uh, likewise, from a command and control standpoint, communications, satellite communications is critical to what we do. And, and there are many different means by which we do satellite communications. Um, it could be through broadcast signals, uh, as we have traditionally done over the last few years in Canada, but it's also uh, engaging with commercial SATCOM providers. And, uh, and working with our allies and some of the more protected military SATCOM as well. So those things all have to be factored into consideration 
um, with new equipment that perhaps needs to be upgraded and, and recognize all of this. And then new procurements need to take all of that into account as well. Of course, it's a capability um, and, uh, and, and we are one on which we are extremely reliant on, but that's not lost on our adversaries who go, okay, well, you know, if, if, that's, if you are counting on it uh, to conduct operations, then uh, we'll see what we can do to perhaps mess with it a little bit and, and degrade your capabilities a little bit. So that's where that military piece comes in, in trying to sort of have assured access to those capabilities in the domain uh, and make sure that we're able to continue our missions and, and carry on. And to the point on, on getting out and talking to folks as well, that's a big part of what we're doing is, is talking across the Canadian Armed Forces to all of our members to say, listen, these things that we've sort of taken for granted over the last 15, 20 years in terms of, you know, you turn it on and off you go. Um, there are concerns from a military standpoint that we need to make sure that, that we have that capability available to us. Uh, so it's important that somebody's looking out uh, and keeping an eye on the domain and the systems and, and what our allies are doing uh, and importantly what our adversaries are doing in that regard as well. So it really is ubiquitous in this application across the, um, the Canadian Forces context. What we're doing in that regard, Canada is not going to field its own GPS constellation. The U.S. has done that. Um, allies avail themselves with that. So you know, there are certainly efficiencies in working with our allies. What we've done in Canada is leveraged some ongoing expertise and experience in certain things like satellite communications. We've got a long history of that within Canada. Um, synthetic aperture radar in space is a capability that we've got a lot of expertise in the Canadian aerospace industry as well. And one of the things that actually is critically important to what we're doing is space domain awareness. We have a satellite called Sapphire, which contributes to the space surveillance network to sort of identify objects in orbit and understand what it is they're doing, how they're behaving um, and, and where they are as well. So those are really niche capabilities, if you will, for the Canadian forces as we move forward. We're gonna sort of concentrate our efforts on those um, as opposed to recreating something of which there's already 50 or 100 different uh, pieces of kit. To that end, you know, it's really important that we work with our allies. Um, if you talk to uh, the Americans and, and most notably uh, General uh, Jay Raymond, who's sort of the, the grandfather, if you will, of US Space Forces, you know, he's fond of saying that space is hard. Uh, and it's hard because it's resource intensive. You know, it, it takes a lot of people, it takes a lot of effort, it takes resources in order to make all this happen. So working with your allies is absolutely important to be able to leverage what everyone else is doing and then basically sharing that capability collectively. And, and we say that we're, you know, allied by design. Um, it's really an important thing to do um, as far as we're concerned anyways, to, to do that and, and fold that into our military capability. So that's really interesting, uh, allied by design. Um, I suspect, as you mentioned, that space has relevance to all the different domains of the military, Army, Navy, Air Force, Special Operations. So I suspect your staff will comprise folks from across the different areas of the Canadian Armed Forces, or will it be primarily just from the RCAF? No, absolutely. We are a joint organization. So if you look across our lines, we've got folks in all of those uniforms. Um, and in fact, part of the, the command um, billets that we've got under the new division, uh, we have a, a wing, seven wing, um, which is charged with the, you know, delivering those operational effects, uh, seven space operations squadron and seven ops support squadron. And, uh, and one of those COs is actually a naval officer. Um, sort of to highlight the fact that, yeah, in fact, we are joint and conceivably, you know, somebody in my position could be from one of those other services as well. Interesting. And from that allied perspective, you know, you've mentioned Space Force, uh, but there's also a, a NORAD recapitalization that is that is going to take place. So how will the three Canadian Space Division factor in to both NORAD and also domestically and internationally, perhaps with Space Force? 
Right. So the NORAD piece is is important because certainly delivering on the NORAD mandate, uh, there is a, a requirement for those space enablers. You know, um, GPS is an obvious one, no matter what we're doing, whether it be in NORAD or around the world. Um, those are key enablers. Um, satellite communications is also going to be a key component of that as well. Um, and as you you know extend further north, you know, it gets a little more difficult to maintain communications with ground, naval or air forces as well. Um, the solution to that is you know, robust SATCOM that is able to cover right up to those northern latitudes. So within the NORAD context, um, certainly the um, Air and Space Force Development folks included space capabilities as part of that NORAD package. Um, it includes obviously the aircraft, the command and control systems, but also those enablers to be able to execute on the NORAD mission. So that's critically important. From our perspective as well, though, if it's something like a SATCOM or Earth observation or what have you, um, you know, we're not going to turn it off the minute it leaves our coastline until it comes back to the other coastline, right? So a lot of those capabilities are actual dual purpose in so far as you know we can use them to absolutely conduct the NORAD mission and mandate, um, but they also bring capabilities to our forces that might be deployed, you know, anywhere around the world, uh, and certainly feed that into any allied capabilities as well where we might be able to contribute. Hey everyone, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. Cubic provides networked C4 ISR capabilities for defense, intelligence, security, and commercial missions. Cubic is revolutionizing the ultra-portable satellite communications industry through their range of the world's most portable and secure satellite antennas. Engineered to revolutionize data and voice communications for allied forces, Cubic's inflatable satellite antennas and deployable cellular solutions provide industry-leading portability, fast setup times, and reduced operational costs. Easy to deploy with high bandwidth throughput and low cost of ownership, the Gator inflatable satellite antennas are deployed by allied forces and aid agencies in some of the most extreme environments on the planet. These portable and secure satellite antennas deliver up to a 50% reduction in packout weight and volume compared to deployable rigid antennas of similar size. Cubic's inflatable satellite antennas are ideal for first-in deployments remote applications, and contingency scenarios. Cubic's inflatable satellite antennas take as little as 30 minutes to set up. They are 50% lighter when compared to equivalent VSAT antennas. They maintain performance in high winds and extreme temperatures. Their smaller profile results in reduced shipping and satellite access costs, and they support the KU, C, X, and the KA bands. To learn more about these incredibly versatile products, please visit cubic.com. Now let's get back to our guest. So being joint, um, do you foresee that there perhaps will be exchange officers within three Canadian space division? We already have them. So oh, right okay. now, when you look at the original sort of space mission for Canada, we were intimately involved in NORAD since its inception decades ago. Um, and NORAD was sort of the original organization that did space tracking and missile warning, missile defense and, and those kinds of things. Um, and so we had Canadians down working uh, with our NORAD, with the Americans and within that NORAD construct uh, for many, many years. Um, so 
to that end, you know, we have Canadians that are down in Colorado Springs and Vandenberg and various other places working with the U.S. And conversely, I have uh, U.S. members that are certainly working on my staff as well uh, from the U.S. Space Force. Um, and as we continue to, like I said, evolve and, and work on those cooperative pieces, uh, equally, we're investing in opportunities to do that with, um, well, the UK and Australians, for instance, are, are easy, uh, easy ones to, uh, to do as well. So yes, I think it's absolutely critical because of the shared nature of those resources and what we're doing. It's really important to understand what others are doing and, and be able to work in collaboration with them. Yeah, I, I love that. I think it's a great way to go about your business. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you see the Canadian space industry today. Um, because as you mentioned, perhaps you're not going to create a new constellation of, of satellites, but it is entirely possible that you could put certain satellites into space. Um, yeah. uh, but from your perch as commander of three Canadian space division, how do you look at the Canadian space industry? And how do you think that those companies could help you go about your business? It's actually, it's a really interesting question, Jody, and one that I think is unique to the space domain, um, simply because we talk about the environment, the space domain being congested, contested, and competitive, you know, and if we look at that from a purely military standpoint, you know, those, those words, I think, are fairly self-explanatory, um, but you can't ignore the civilian or commercial presence in the domain. Um, so what used to be the purview of, of nation states, who were the only sort of ones that had budgets big enough to put a platform into space, we're now seeing an incredible surge over the last couple of years of civilian and commercial participation in that domain um, as they realize, you know, there are markets to be had. There's, you know, money to be made in this business, you know, in order to deliver a service, um, which has made the domain extremely interesting to operate in. Because now you sort of look at the fact that the congested part of it has to do with the fact that there's a lot of other players in the environment. Uh, and of course, the biggest example of that would be Starlink, right? So SpaceX, um, you know, within the last couple of years um, has put up close to 2,500 satellites in low Earth orbit. Um, the number of satellites in orbit has doubled since I took over this job two years ago, just to show you the rate of, of or the pace of change in that regard. Wow. So we have to take that into account. Um, some of those satellites, uh, for instance, satellite communications are performing both a commercial or civil purpose, you know, broadcasting with, with a relaying cell phone networks or, or, you know, your Netflix or what have you. Um, but by the same token, we may also be using those in order to conduct command and control or communications with military forces around the world as well. Um, and as that happens, the line sort of blurs a little bit between what's commercial, what's military. And then the other piece that becomes of interest is those national companies that have got assets in space, you know, from a Canadian Forces perspective, you know, we're looking at protecting the domain and making sure that we have our shared access for, for all of society to these, these enablers that, you know, make everything happen in Canadian society. Um, you know, how do, we, how do we look at those commercial players and roll them into a national defense or sovereignty position? And, and again, to go back and use an analogy, I use the, the maritime domain. You know, at some point you've got uh, commercial vessels going back and forth, but you know, if they're coming under threat from piracy or, or from what have you, then you ask you know, military forces to come in and protect or, or, or provide um, maritime security as required. It's the same type of thing. You're now ending up in a domain that is getting extremely busy and congested with not just government operated assets, but commercial ones as well. And, and how those play into all of that is, is really quite interesting. It's a, a significant shift in, in the domain and how we approach it. To that end, how does that work with Canadian industry? I think there is a lot of really good, solid 
Canadian aerospace industry that have I've got a proven track record, um, you know, and off the top of my mind, you can use the MDAs and the telestats of the world. But there are a number of smaller startups that have come up with some incredible uh, capabilities that are, are being able to be leveraged for both government use, but also, like I said, for commercial uses as well. Um, and that's something that we want to maintain awareness of. What are those capabilities? What are they doing? Are there things that we can use as well? So I try and remain engaged with a lot of these companies when we go to trade shows and what have you to sort of understand what they're doing. And yeah, it, it just makes for an extremely dynamic environment and trying to understand all that and how all those pieces all fit together. It's really interesting. Yeah, I was actually just made aware of IMP Electronic Systems, who also has, which I think is fascinating, has uh, wiring harnesses on the James Webb Space Telescope. Sure. Yep. Um, you know, and they have some of their harnesses on the Canada Arm, uh, which is on the International Space Station. It's actually quite amazing how many companies are are active in this space that perhaps many Canadians are not aware of. Absolutely. And I think there's an element of that in, in educating Canada in terms of, A, this, this great industry base that we've got. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but certainly you, you see industry folks quoting that the space industry is going to be worth, you know, at, you know billions and billions of dollars this year and, and trillions 10 years from now um, in terms of, you know, what's going to be out there in terms of space exploration, space mining, um, you know, all the different possibilities out there for uh, for commercial industry. Um, it's, it's extremely fascinating. And, and we certainly have a lot of uh, um, industrial capacity in Canada and expertise to be able to leverage all of that. Yeah. And part and parcel of that is then also the exploitation and sometimes the abuse of the, of the environment, right. Which is, which is why I guess, you know, organizations like yours exist. Well, exactly. And I think a perfect example of that is what we would refer to as responsible behaviors. So, you know, within the United Nations context, the UK has, uh, has put forward some language to try and come up with some way of codifying what is a responsible behavior or a responsible actor in space look like? You know, it, it's things like being able to deorbit ex, uh, expired satellites, you know, in a safe manner, uh, such that they don't uh, pollute the atmosphere or provide, you know, um, a hazard to navigation, if you will, on those orbits. Uh, as a result of that, you know, when we see behaviors that we deem irresponsible, um, that's something that from a Canadian Forces perspective, we're keenly interested in to sort of understand what that might mean to our friends, our allies, and to the orbit at large. And the best example of that would be the, uh, the test uh, where the Russians used an anti-satellite weapon to uh, destroy one of their own defunct satellites. Um, got it. It was theirs. Um, however, the act of doing that created hundreds, if not thousands, of pieces of debris that were then floating around in the atmosphere, the, uh, the orbit that posed a hazard to our satellites, their satellites, the International Space Station. Um, and to that end, you know, it's military forces and capabilities that do a lot of the debris tracking to understand where that debris is uh, in order to notify, again, not just, you know, the, our government satellites, but, you know, ISS or exploration or NASA, CSA assets, um, but also reaching out to commercial uh, industry and going, hey, listen, you know, we're tracking this. It poses a threat to your Inmarsat or your, um, you know, your, you know, Earth observation satellite. And so that's sort of where that that combination and effort or that collaborative effort needs to happen between military forces and commercial. We're all up there trying to use the domain as best we can. And it's everyone's best interest to sort of act responsibly. Um, codifying those behaviors is going to be a challenge, but, uh, you know, we've done it with codifying the, the law of the sea. Um, you know, we've got um, rules and regulations that cover aviation uh, in terms of, you know, how that all operates. And I think the next step is going to be to try and sort of find some way of of um, codifying or mandating responsible behaviors in the space environment. Yeah, I think that's going to be a very important step that must uh, that must occur. Um, 
so when we talk about the complexities of operating in this space domain, um, I guess, and perhaps I should have asked this earlier, but in the context of three Canadian space division, what is your footprint, uh, both in terms of manpower and in terms of physical presence of where your staff and, and folks are? Certainly. Um, I think at the moment, uh, we're sort of driving towards a, a state of about 170, 75, 175 people or so across the Canadian forces to sort of be concentrating on those space pieces. Um, those bodies are situated, you know, across the departments, both within my organization, um, but then it could include things like image analysts within our intelligence command, could you include policy officers within various um, places. And then, of course, um, we have people that are positioned out of country, uh, both with the U.S. Uh, working there, but we've also got folks posted to NATO, which is a nascent space organization within NATO as well, uh, as they sort of Again, their evolution, their own evolution of recognizing the importance of the domain for NATO. Um, at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're looking to sort of, we've identified certainly that there's more that can be done. We would like to grow the organization probably closer up to 280 over the next few years, but uh, we'll sort of get there. We'll, uh, we'll walk before we run. In terms of where we're located at the moment, we're in two main locations here in Ottawa, both at our main Carlin campus, which is um, where we sort of have the division headquartered, if you will. And then our operations folks, seven space wing and the two ops squadrons are located over with joint operations command across the city and the other campus there. And then, like I said, uh, folks spread out, sprinkled uh, elsewhere across uh, both the U.S. and uh, in NATO. So in context of NORAD and current NORAD installations, will those people that are assigned to those duties, will they ultimately perhaps fall under your command or, or will they stay separate? So that's interesting. So at the moment, they, uh, the folks, for instance, that are within NATO or within the, uh, the NORAD elements fall under those chain of command, but it's a conversation that we're having. Um, now that we've stood up the division um, and we have sort of a clear central point of, uh, of interest in an organization that's really clearly mandated to look at that, um, yeah, we're going to investigate whether or not it makes sense that they be more closely associated with the division as opposed to any of those other organizations. Um, and that's actually on my, on my whiteboard to-do list is to sort of audit, if you will, where we've got those folks and, uh, and see how they uh, sort of best fit into the organization now that the div is stood up. That's really interesting. Um, when I think about procurement in the military, obviously procurement, you know, you could go down so many different rabbit holes with that. But um, as you mentioned, every aspect of the Canadian Armed Forces, Army, Navy, Air Force, Special Operations, uh, space factors into everybody. And so in that context, do you foresee that three Canadian Space Division might have input when it comes to being enabled with space-enabled equipment? So I guess where I'm going with this is like, let's say for the future Canadian multi-mission aircraft, you know, the follow-on to the community that you were in uh, sure. in the long-range maritime patrol, um, you know, aircraft like that, or for the R-Pass, um, you know, the remotely piloted aircraft, um, systems like that, that all have to be connected, you know, passing information, you know, whether it be voice or whether it be video, um, do you foresee that you will have input into all of those potential platforms that are being acquired because you would be the subject matter experts in theory? Yeah, so from a capability development standpoint, that, as I sort of alluded to earlier, um, is now over with air and space capability or force development. So in terms of looking at procuring those, those capabilities, um, but absolutely, we would be a consulting factor in all of that. So, you know, as, as a new aircraft platform is coming online, 
part and parcel of that is, okay, well, what equipment are we going to uh, get on that piece of equipment? Are we going to go with the cassette deck or the CD player? Is it going to get a sunroof, um, you know, heated seats or what have you? Um, right. But no, so obviously they'll they'll factor in, well, we're going to need some kind of satellite communications, you know, um, we're going to need the upgraded GPS as the GPS system is modernized and the next generation of those gets rolled out. So certainly I've got folks within my staff that uh, work closely with our allies as those are being developed. Um, so for GPS modernization, you know, we are part and parcel of the testing and evaluation of that as it goes along. Um, and so then we take that information when it's ready to go and, and send, hand that over to the procurement folks and say, listen, okay, when you buy box X, make sure you get the one that's got, you know, the ability to be able to connect to the upgraded systems uh, from the GPS perspective. Um, and then and yes, from a procurement standpoint, I'm less concerned perhaps with the equipment that's on the aircraft or the tank or the ship itself. That would be part of buying those pieces of equipment or that aircraft. Um, but when I'm looking at the capability, I am concerned with, for instance, the satellite communications network that we're going to put up. You know, what does that look like? What bands might that work on? Um, will that, you know, satisfy our requirement for, you know, polar communications right up to, you know, alert in the North Pole above, say, 65 North, which is currently, a, you know, a limitation. And so from that perspective, um, we keep an eye on what the requirements are. We look at what operations we foresee coming up and we try and figure out, okay, what are those capabilities that are going to serve um, that? So there's ones that are very clearly connected to platforms like communications, if you will, or GPS. Uh, there's other ones where it's information, for instance, that we're interested in, in being able to get to be able to support operations. And so an example of that would be uh, RadarSat 2 or the RadarSat Constellation mission, uh, which we've worked with the CSA on. Um, that provides a synthetic aperture radar image of Earth. Uh, you know, in our particular case, uh, we're interested in maritime approaches to Canada, for instance. So that can identify, you know, all of the ships that are coming and going off of our coastal approaches, um, which is significant. You know, we take that information, um, we overlay some other information domain awareness picture, uh, and then that we can feed into the Navy and say, okay, listen, this is what's going off of our coasts. Uh, these are the ships that are coming and going. These ones have clearly identified themselves, so we're pretty sure that they're doing what they say they're doing. Uh, these ones over here are running dark. We got them on radar and nothing else. So uh, maybe that's something we need to go and take a look at. Uh, and it's not just for Canada. That's a worldwide capability as well. So for um, you know, our naval forces that might be deployed to do maritime, I think I just, I think I just had uh, my GPS jammed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I got a thing saying my connection was unstable and I don't know why, but, uh, uh, but it, hey, there's a perfect example right there, General. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm, and that's the other part of the message. I'll take advantage of that little segue to say, you know, part of what I want to do is be able to um, communicate to Canadians um, what our societal reliance are the, on these things are. People say, you know, why is Space Division? What, what is it doing for Canada? Um, and what it's doing is it's maintaining awareness of all of those things that are going on within the domain, um, uh, things that are affecting even terrestrially. If, if somebody is, is um, you know, having issues with connectivity on a ground station, you know, what impact does that have to day-to-day -day life of Canadians? Um, and the Rogers outage is a perfect example of how the whole country came to a grinding halt because we didn't have access to Rogers for whatever reason. Um, I don't know that Canadians are sufficiently aware of how much of their day-to-day -day life relies on these capabilities. Um, and the role of Canadian Space Division is to make sure that we maintain access to that uh, and remain abreast of what's going on in the domain. 
I mean, it doesn't matter if you're talking about, you know, your ATM um, or the banking systems in the financial markets, they won't work if they don't have that time code from the GPS signal to say, yes, you can't take out money that you haven't already put into your account. And we've got a timestamp that shows when that's happening, right? Um, you know, satellite communications and, and cell phones, you know, is absolutely critical to what we do. Um, first responders can't get to where they're going if they don't know where they're going or got that 911 call in the first place. Um, and, you know, and as I explained to my kids, uh, you know, the Amazon package that shows up at our door every day won't find you if they don't have access to these things as well. So, you know, I think there is a huge societal relationship on these things that we sort of don't fully understand and certainly, I think, take for granted as well. And that's part of the role of what the Canadian Space Division is about as well as to understand that and then make sure that we are, um, you know, looking after Canadians interested in the domain. And that's super interesting. I, I completely agree with you. I think a lot of people don't have a really good idea of how important the space domain is. Um, so how can Canadians or how can industry help you in your endeavors? And what exactly is your immediate focus going forward? Like on your whiteboard, some of the things that you know, you're really kind of focused on, I'm asking because those that will listen to this podcast if they are able to help, then they need to know what you guys are looking for. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we've been trying to be fairly clear on those sort of ones that we know for sure, like communications, for instance, you know, that's, that's a no brainer. We know that we're going to need that kind of capability. Um, Canada is unique in so far as so much of our geography is, is north of that 65 north, you know, most satellite communications are good up to about 65 or 70 north. Um, and for the rest of the world, that's just fine. They don't have a lot of people, you know, outside of that band. Um, for Canada, absolutely, that's a concern for us, not just to be able to bring communications and high speed internet and, and things to uh, northern communities, but also, you know, as we um, look at it being able to expand our, our Canadian forces ability through aircraft and what have you to go out there um, and protect our, our sovereignty. Um, command and control is going to be really important. So there's those pieces that are that are obvious. What's really interesting is what we don't know what we don't know. Um, Canadian industry and, and industry writ large uh, around the world is coming up with absolutely incredible things that we wouldn't even have thought of. Uh, you know, and I talked to these companies in Canada, you know, about um, these sensors, they've developed an ability to detect this or that from low Earth orbit, you know, and, and you go, wow, that's really interesting. And some of it might be of assistance to us in terms of being able to understand what's going on in the Earth. Uh, some of it might not. But, you know, I have these conversations and it's absolutely incredible. I think what's important is to maintain that dialogue. I think it's important that industry and and DND and CSA and the government sort of come together and understand who's doing what within the domain. Um, they might come up with something that we didn't even know existed or a better way of doing business that would absolutely be a game changer for us. Um, and so we are by no means the experts on, on tech and moving these things forward. We leverage a lot of those great ideas that are coming from industry. So, I mean, what would I ask industry to do? I would, I would ask them to, um, you know, to continue and innovate on those things that they know are sort of those core capabilities that we're going to be looking at. Um, but also, you know, let us know of those really neat things that they've come up with in the back of a lab somewhere that, that may have some application for us. And to that end, though, that sort of comes back to where you blur the lines a little bit between commercial and, and national security. Maybe they say, hey, we're doing this thing and, and we can detect X, Y and Z. Um, we can detect forest fires. But by the same token, we can also detect an IED that blows up. Um, you know, is that the kind of thing you'd be interested in? And we go, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, understanding where we can leverage all of these really smart folks in Canada is going to be really important for us. So I think that that dialogue is going to be really important to continue over the next few years. Hey folks, 
Did you know that IMP Aerospace and Defense's Electronic Systems Division is instrumental in providing equipment for the space domain? The division regularly supports most of the major players in the Canadian space industry and has products on the Radarsat constellation of Earth observation satellites and the famous Canada arm on the International Space Station. IMP is particularly proud to be part of the most significant space exploration mission in recent times, that being the James Webb Space Telescope, which is a joint effort by NASA, the Canadian Space Agency, and the European Space Agency. IMP was selected to design, manufacture, and test a suite of qualification, engineering test, and flight wiring harnesses for the James Webb Telescope's fine guidance sensor. So it is inspiring to know that those IMP manufactured products are now operating 1.5 million kilometers away from Earth. These examples speak to IMP's excellence in the space domain. There is no doubt the company is on the leading edge and it is committed to further developing capabilities in the space industry. To learn more about them, please visit impaerospaceanddefense.com. Now, let's get back to our guest. I guess I should also ask, um, what projects are currently underway that have direct correlation to the Canadian Space Division? Because I think there are some satellite requirements and such that are out there, but I'm not exactly sure. So yeah, at the moment, we've got three main programmatic lines of uh, in varying stages of development. Uh, the first one is, I've talked about it a lot, SATCOM, satellite communications sort of satisfy that requirement, um, both north of 65. It's ability uh, that meets our requirements and is possibly something that we can bring to a, a coalition effort that our allies can tie into as well. That's great. Um, Earth observation is uh, another key um, piece for us. I talked about maritime domain awareness. So certainly that's a, a main line of effort. The other one for us is surveillance of space. So space domain awareness. At the moment, Canada is the only one of our allied group that has got a platform on orbit. Um, other allies have got ground-based optical and various radars that are looking up into, uh, into those various orbits to track what's going on. But Canada has got Sapphire which is a satellite that's currently on orbit feeding into the U.S. space surveillance network. Um, and for things like, you know, where we had this debris cloud is situational awareness and then space domain awareness. And situational awareness is, okay, what, um, what is where? Okay, that's the space station. That's a Starlink satellite. That's a piece of debris. Uh, they're going around. They're doing their thing. Um, space domain awareness is understanding what people are doing in orbit. So understanding what's changing in that dynamic environment and who's doing what, and then being able to attribute uh, those actions is critically important to national security as well. So that third line of effort, space domain awareness, is a really um, a core military capability, if you will. And, uh, and we have a project in place at the moment as well called Surveillance of Space 2 uh, that will be replacing the SAFIRE capability um, and, uh, and continue that effort for us as well. Beautiful. Um, so we're nearing the end of our time here, but it's important to ask the question because you are a member of the Canadian Armed Forces and it is a factor that we have to talk about. You know, you referenced the Russians shooting down their own satellite as a test, but um, that is the weaponization of space. Uh, what are your thoughts about that topic and how is the Canadian Armed Forces, the Canadian Space Division looking at that? That's a great question, Jody, and actually one that I feel that a couple of times over the last couple of weeks is people have said, well, that space division, doesn't that represent the militarization of space? 
Um, and I think we need to understand the militarization of space happened with the first satellite that went up, which was part of the space race between Russia and the U.S. Um, that that horses left the barn, if you will. Um, you know, I mean, so, you know, there have been military applications to space endeavors since we've started putting satellites into orbit, you know, and so I don't, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it certainly facilitates what it is that we're doing. It certainly um, it keeps our, our troops safe in the conduct of their duties uh, and being able to, you know, effectively do what it is we ask them to do, whether it be domestically or around the world. It enables a lot of those things in national security. The weaponization of space, that's something else entirely, you know, and so militarization versus weaponization, there is a nuanced difference, you know, from a space division perspective and from a Canadian perspective and um, government of Canada perspective, you know, that is not something that we're interested in doing. You know, we're not looking to weaponize space. Uh, we're not looking to, um, you know, create platforms, whether they be, you know, terrestrially launched, you know, anti-satellite weapons or, or putting anything on orbit, weapons in orbit uh, to do all of that. Uh, we're more concerned with um, being able to enable and enhance operations on the globe um, and then be able to understand what's going on in space so that we can provide that modicum of assurance um, for Canadian forces operations, but also for Canadians writ large, you know, about what's going on to make sure that we can protect the environment um, so that it's accessible and usable by everyone. I greatly appreciate that explanation, General. I think that is an important uh, a nuance to mention that, you know, Canada is not interested in weaponizing space. Absolutely. Um, if I were to ask you your one biggest concern in this space domain, I, I have my thought on what it, what I would think it is, but I would love to hear what your biggest concern is for the domain. I think right now, I think responsible behaviors um, is, is a big thing. I think we need, um, and it, it might be a difficult thing to do, but I think we need to be able to understand how we can all operate in that environment um, from both a, a national security, but also a civil and, and commercial standpoint as well. I think space, um, we're just at the early days of, of what we're going to be able to do in this environment. And, and again, I like to use analogies. So imagine if you will, you know, Europeans, um, you know, remained within sight of the coast. They were doing fishing and, and they were doing all that stuff. But at the end of the day, they, they came back into their safe harbors. Um, and then one day somebody said, you know, uh, I'm pretty sure I won't fall off the end of the world, but I'm going to keep going uh, and see what's out there if I keep going. Um, you know, and, and it was done probably for, for merchant reasons, for mercantile reasons, right? They went off to find treasures and gold and spices and what have you and explore the world. And I think um, we're at that point where in the orbits that we are around Earth, we're, we're still within sight of home and safe harbor. Um, you know, and I think what's gonna be absolutely fascinating in the coming years is all of those thinkers and commercial actors who go, you know what, I think it's time to go out and see what's beyond there. What, what's beyond the moon, um, you know, what, what, you know, Asteroids could be mined for riches and, and those kinds of things. But I think that's going to be the really most interesting part about this. But I think as we go out and do all of that, we probably need to sort out what we're doing here close to home first. Um, you know, how do we operate in and amongst each other in a safe manner uh, so that when it comes time then to stretch our legs and go out beyond that, um, you know, that we're able to do that safely. And I think it's, it's really, we are early days in what is absolutely a fascinating area of, of exploration. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm really keen and eager to see where that all goes and really pleased to be able to play my small part, certainly in, uh, in helping facilitate that certainly in the near term right now. So, yeah. I love it. And it's interesting, your perspective versus mine, because yours is very wide reaching, which, which it should be, you know, thinking about all of these different aspects, um, in answer to the question that I just posed to you, 
my concern when I think about this base domain is GPS denial, but it's very specific. And I guess I think of it in the context of the military where everything, you know, whether it be aircraft, ships, um, vehicles, but also, um, you know, let's face it, the military does need to knock down doors at times. And so, um, so a lot of weapons are GPS enabled and rightly so, because that means that they're more precise, which means that there's less collateral damage. And so that's for the benefit of everybody. Nobody wants to get into a kinetic fight, but if you have to, let's be accurate. And so that's kind of where I think about where I'm concerned, but, um, but that's just one kind of narrow sliver of the, of the overall thing. You know, that factors into my considerations as well. I, there, I would be remiss if I didn't say that those are things that concern me as well. But again, that comes back to that mission assurance piece, understanding what our adversaries have in terms of capability, how they can mess with our day and, and where they can degrade or deny our capabilities. Um, you know, and, and, and I know we're running short on time, but that's one of the things we're doing in the space division as well, is we have a bit of an aggressor cell or a red cell, if you will, uh, that goes out and operates with the Army, Air Force and Navy to say, hey, listen, when you're going out, keep in mind that you might not have access to these things all the time as you think you do, or as we've been grown accustomed uh, or taking it for granted. Um, so yeah, we, we can work around those. Certainly we need to identify what those challenges are uh, and make sure that our, our folks are trained sufficiently and understand you know, where the risks are to those operations. Um, so yeah, certainly that's one of, I guess, one of the other many things that sort of occupy my time and uh, when I stop and think about it, but yeah. Well, you know, it makes me think about just operations deployed. You know, if you have an, uh, let's say, a, a, an army battalion or, or a division or whatever, uh, or even a platoon go out and everyone's got a cell phone. Well, now, you know, in theory, that could be a potential risk because Absolutely. they're all emitting something or receiving something. Absolutely. And those are known risks that we have, and we take steps to mitigate that. It's the ones that we haven't yet thought of as well to go, you know, oh, by the way, they're also tracking your Garmin Fitbit, uh, right. you know, what have you. Right. Those, are, those are ones that uh, we need to be concerned about as well. But uh, that's the role of the Space Div is to, uh, is to understand those, those threats and then uh, make sure that we uh, work with the rest of the Canadian Armed Forces to be able to uh, continue operations in the face of all of that uh, without compromising ourselves. I love it. So General, uh, my last question to you is, what haven't I asked you that is important for you to kind of mention about what you guys are doing or about the establishment of three Canadian Space Division? You know, Andrew, I think you've, uh, I think we've touched on all of it, uh, whether you asked me or I went off on a tangent uh, to talk about some things as well. But really, from my perspective, you know, this stand up of the division has been really, really interesting for us. It represents this huge move forward for us, like I said, in operationalizing our organization, but it's given me a chance to talk to folks in, in media and whatnot um, about the domain and, and not just what it means for the Canadian Armed Forces, but also what it means for Canadians. And I think to that end, you know, I'm really I'm grateful for the opportunity to do that. I thanks very much for your questions. I think uh, they were great. And um, yeah, if, if you think of more, give me a call back. We can do this again. You know what? I'll take you up on that offer. I, I think it'll be interesting just to see how things evolve and it'd be lovely to maintain this connection. Uh, I greatly appreciate that. Awesome. Well, Brigadier General Mike Adamson, Commander of 3 Canadian Space Division, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, sir. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Joy. Thank you. Hope you have a wonderful day. Take care, General. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved.
No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.